Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of the Talk Witchcraft podcast. In this episode, Maggie and I will be sharing stories about Aries and Mars and Tyr, the Greek, Roman, and Norse counterpart gods. You're listening to Talk Witchcraft. On this podcast, we talk about witchcraft as a lifestyle and discover how to merge magic into your daily life. Every week, we'll demystify witchy topics like tarot, astrology, crystals, herbs, and more as you develop your personal brand of magic and create the life of your dreams. We're your hosts, the Mystic Sisters, Erica and Maggie. In this segment of the show, we choose a tarot card for the week and we look for moments that relate to this card in our daily lives. For this episode, we chose the Chariot, which is a major arcana card which represents personal power and determination. In the traditional Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck, the Chariot is depicted as a chariot, with two sphinxes facing opposite directions. This represents opposing forces that need to be kept in balance. On the left is logic, and on the right is emotions. Then we have the Charioteer, who is crowned with a sun disc and wearing armor. He is holding a staff in one hand while waving with the other in greeting or victory. This represents the need to focus our mind and will on achieving our goals while still being open to new ideas and opportunities. The chariot card is often associated with movement, both physical and spiritual. It represents the motivation needed to take action in order to move forward toward their goals. The chariot often symbolizes hard work, effort, and determination in order to achieve success. This card encourages us to use our willpower and strength of mind to overcome any obstacles that stand in our way. So Maggie, do you have a story about self-control and victory over obstacles, or maybe a time when you recognized your strengths and weaknesses in order to make progress? I think this is a good representation of when I discovered I had ADHD because it kind of helps me to have like a name for it for the things I had been struggling with for my whole life. And it gave me the ability to learn strategies that would help me to overcome those challenges. Whereas before I didn't necessarily know where to look, I was able to find resources about that from other people who have ADHD or from, you know, researchers who study it to help me to come up with ideas for myself. That's what it's making me think of that you don't know how to overcome weaknesses if you don't know what they are. You don't know how to like, enhance your strengths if you don't know what they are. It's also kind of a little bit of that self-knowledge stuff, looking at your natal chart, like we do a lot on this podcast, of giving you that information about the different positions of the planets in the, the signs and the houses and all of that. There are strengths and weaknesses to all of these positions, and when we know them, it can help us to achieve our goals. So I don't know if that was specific, but I think having the information about ADHD has helped me with a lot of my goals and being able to achieve them. So I guess that's kind of my chariot was that moment where I was given the wheels to roll me forward. And I feel like I have like a vehicle to overcome those challenges that ADHD presents to me because I have strategies. And so I can be this guy on the chariot raising my hand in victory because I can ride my chariot towards whatever goals that I have. Do you have a story? I recently had a 
conflict at work where I felt micromanaged and I felt disrespected and that I wasn't given anonymity to do my job. My first reaction was, I'm done, I'm out, I'm leaving, I'm finding another job. After reflection and processing, I realized that that's my pattern. If that occurs in past jobs that I've had, I tend to flee. I don't want to deal with it. I feel like it's not worth the effort of trying to fix it. I don't want to make it change. I just don't, I just don't want to be there anymore. And so instead in this situation, because I was reflecting on like, I don't want to start all over again. I don't want to go back to the beginning. If I start a new job, I'm going to have to learn everything all over again. And I like what I'm doing in my job and I'm good at what I'm doing in my current job. And I'm in the place where I've wanted to be in a place of mentorship and leadership and teaching and helping others to grow, which has been a goal of mine for my whole career. And so it's like, if I leave, then I lose all of that. I lose that progress and I lose that success that I've built up. And so in Instead, I talked with my boss about it (laughs) and it was fine. And she recognized where I was coming from and she explained things, why she felt like she needed to do those things. And we came to an understanding. Everything is good now. So I recognized my weakness of needing to flee and embraced my strength of I'm doing a good job. I made progress and got what I needed. As Erica mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we're telling stories about different gods from the Greek, Roman, and Norse mythologies. We'll be doing this throughout the year, kind of the god or goddess that goes with the season, the zodiac season that we're in. So we're in Aries season. We're talking about Mars, which is the ruler of Aries or Aries, which Eric will tell us the difference (laughs) of that when we get there. And we're also talking about Tyr, which is the Norse equivalent of Mars. So Erica, go ahead and tell us about Aries and Mars. Aries, A-R-I-E-S, which is the season that we're in, refers to the ram and the constellation that's in the shape of the ram's head that comes from the story of Jason and the Argonauts in which Jason is on a quest to find Aries, the ram's golden fleece. Aries, the god, A-R-E-S, is tangentially related to Aries the ram, but not like directly. So Aries without an I, A-R-E-S, the god of war is the Greek counterpart of Mars, the Roman god of war. Their tangential relationship is that the ram's golden fleece was on an island sacred to Aries, the god of war, and it was guarded by the Clochian dragon, which is one of Ares, the god of war's pets. So we've got some homonyms here with Ares and Ares, but one is a ram and one is a god. And they really don't have anything to do with each other except for the fleece was housed on the god's island. And Ares rules over Ares. And Ares rules over Ares. Yes. In the <laughs> But we, in in astrology, we talk about it more as Mars rules over Aries because it's the planet. Right. It's actually easier to find stories about the Greek gods over the Roman gods. Usually when you do a search, like preparing for this podcast, I searched for stories about Aries and Mars. 
and all of the links that come up come up as Aries stories and then they have a little footnote about how Mars is his counterpart and the reason for this is because the Greeks came first and the Romans are the conquerors of the world which actually ties into the stories that I'm going to tell that they just usurped and took over the Greek stories and made them their own for example Aries the god of war is the father of Romulus and Remus. So therefore Mars is the father of Romulus and Remus. And of course, Romulus being the founding father of Rome. One of the things about like in the Greek mythos, Ares was despised by the other gods and goddesses. He was not liked. He doesn't really have a story that is his own. He just kind of shows up in other stories. The reason for that is that he represents the bloodthirsty, instinctual strife of war. He represents the killing aspects of war. Whereas Athena, the goddess of war, is about the strategy and planning. And so Ares' stories usually end in tragedy or humiliation for Ares because the Greeks wanted to teach their people to not give in to those bloodthirsty instincts and that if you do have to fight then you should be strategic about it. And they uplifted and praised Athena. The exception to that is the Spartans who loved Ares, but their whole culture is around military prowess. The difference then between Ares of the Greek mythos and Mars of the Roman mythos is that the Romans were very bloodthirsty. They were very cunning and militaristic and marching forward and conquering the world. And so Mars being the father of their founding father Romulus made Mars a very important character for them. Moving on to his stories, we're talking about Mars because Mars is the ruler of Ares, but I'm going to be telling stories about Ares, the god of war. <laughs> so there's one in which Ares has a very passionate affair with Aphrodite or Venus in the Roman mythos and Hephaestus who was the husband of Aphrodite finds them and catches them in a net and then like displays them awkwardly and humiliating in front of all of the other pantheon of the Greek gods. He is often surrounded by his band of terrible minions who are both like brothers and sisters and children. So we've got Eris, who is the goddess of discord. We've got strife, terror, trembling, and panic. We see this troop show up in the Trojan War, where Ares sided with the Trojans. These followers are throughout it. And in the Iliad, when Ares shows up, there's not a cheering of like, yay, our God has come and he's going to help us. There's actually kind of this like distraught feeling of, oh no, people are going to die. Athena, who had sided with the Greeks, and it's just like the most perfect like sibling rivalry story where Athena picks up a rock and hucks it at Ares and it hits him in the side. And it's like the most quintessential like, I'm telling moment where Ares runs off in humiliation and is like grievously wounded and he leaves the battle scene. <laughs>
Another story is that Ares is the father of some of the main Amazons. He actually gives Hippolyta her girdle. We see this play out in the blockbuster hit Wonder Woman, where Wonder Woman has to fight Ares, the god of war. There's a lot of bending of the mythos for that movie, but they hold true to it pretty well. And then, of course, there's the story of Jason and the Argonauts, and Ares puts the golden fleece on his island so that it's harder to get to it and he guards it with his dragon. Also, three of his sons were fought by Heracles in his trials. In all of those stories, Ares ends up being very much the loser. He never wins. I guess the moral of the story is war never wins. So like I said, there's not really like a story to tell about Ares. He just is kind of an afterthought in a lot of other stories, but he is definitely a fun character. And I think the juxtaposition between how he's treated in Greek mythology versus the Roman Mars is interesting. So similarly, we have Tyr, which is the Norse god of war and bloodshed, and also kind of an afterthought in the stories. He's kind of in the background of most stories. There's not very many that feature him, but we'll get to that. He's also the bringer of justice and order, though, which is kind of a contradiction to war and bloodshed. And so the way I interpret that is the only reason for violence in in the Norse culture was for the purpose of justice and creating order. He is not mentioned much in the two works that form the backbone of Norse mythology, and these are the poetic Edda and the Prose Edda, which I think is how you say those. Tyr is most associated with Norse mythology, but he originated as a member of the Germanic pantheon. His prominence in lore waned by the Viking era, but his legacy lived on through the use of his name, Tyr, as the letter T in the runic alphabet. And the name for Tuesday comes from Tyr's Day. In fact, the word Tyr means god or maybe the god and uh, it stems from the proto-germanic tiwaz which is the rune that we're going to be discussing on a later episode but tiwaz is also the root for the word zeus and jupiter which are the greek and roman kings of gods respectively but this leads scholars to speculate that Tyr was once held in the same regard as the king of gods by the Germanic people. That's some of what we know, but like I said, there's not much. Let's talk a little bit more about what we know based on the stories about Tyr. There's a passage in a book of the Prose Eda, which basically sums up the character of Tyr. He's known as a brave warrior, but he's also considered a reliable source of wisdom and a champion of justice. He's also called the one-armed god, which we'll get into in a little bit. Now, it is unclear whether Odin, the Allfather, or Hymir, a giant, is Tyr's father, but many scholars conclude that it must be Odin, which would make him the half-sibling to many of the other prominent figures in Norse mythology, including Thor, Baldur, Vali, Vidar, Heimdall, Hermod, Bragi, and Hoder. So his mother is not mentioned, but his grandmother is said to be a woman with 900 heads, so a force to be reckoned with, I'm sure. Now, there are two myths, as I mentioned, that Tyr appears as a central character, and one is Hymiskvitha, which is unfinished. It's an unfinished story, and Tyr disappears midway through, like the author forgot that he was there. (laughs) So... That story is the one that suggests that Tyr's father is Hymir, the giant, and he and Thor go to search for Hymir's fabled kettle. 
However, the story that I'm going to tell you is the story of Tyr, Fenrir, and Ragnarok, because it emphasizes Tyr's bravery and his willingness to make sacrifices for justice. We'll talk more about Fenrir later on in our podcast, but Fenrir is the fabled werewolf, son of Loki. Fenrir grew up in Asgard and lived among the gods, though only Tyr was brave enough to approach him. Knowing that Fenrir would play a critical role in Ragnarok, the gods liked to play a game in which they would try to ensnare him. Fenrir always won, however, and he always broke the chains when they ensnared him. As they were seeking something that would confine Fenrir for good, the gods commissioned the crafty dwarves of Svartalfheim to construct a durable set of fetters, which they lovingly called Gleipnir. With Gleipnir in hand, the gods sought to trap the beasts once more. They presented Gleipnir to Fenrir and challenged him to one final game. When Fenrir saw how thin the bonds were, he grew suspicious and claimed that the gods were trying to deceive him, but he only consented to the game after Tyr agreed to place an arm in his mouth. With this makeshift insurance policy in place, Fenrir allowed the gods to bind him. The great wolf struggled against his bond, and for the first time, he found that he could not break them. He realized that the gods did not intend to release him, and Fenrir bit down on Tyr's hand. And that is why Tyr is the one-armed god. And now, a word from our sponsor. Calling all witches. Come explore the mystical and magical city of New Orleans. This vibrant city is a haven for those who are seeking enchantment in its many hidden gems. Take a stroll through the French Quarter and experience voodoo, tarot readings, and more. Discover the city's enchanting history and learn about its many spells, potions, and rituals. From exploring the mysterious cemeteries to discovering the unique local culture, there is something for all kinds of magical folk. Relax in a haunted hotel or take a ghost tour on the eerie streets of the city. Don't miss out on the chance to visit some of the most haunted and exciting places in the city, like Marie Laveau's House of Voodoo and the LaLaurie Mansion. Whether it's a magical journey or a sightseeing adventure, New Orleans has something to offer every witch. Come see why this southern gem is one of the most popular destinations for witches around the world. And now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Now we're going to talk about ways to work with the gods Ares slash Mars and Tyr. Ares is his main attribute is the peaked warrior helm. That is his thing. He wears it in every single picture I have seen of him. It's part of who he is. He's either wearing it or holding it. There's a couple pictures of the catching Ares and Aphrodite cheating where they're obviously naked, where he's not wearing it because that would be like having sex with your socks on, but it is in the picture nearby. <laughs> he also is depicted with a shield, a spear, and sometimes a sheathed sword. There's usually on his shield an emblem of some sort, and most likely it will be a serpent of some sort as that is one of his sacred animals. He's usually just dressed in standard Greek warrior attire with a breastplate helm and greaves with his short tunic. He's not opulent like some of the other gods and goddesses. 
So like I said, his sacred animal is the serpent, and he's also associated with different kinds of birds, like the vulture, the owl, which I take offense at because that's Athena's animal, but he is often depicted with the owl. He is usually identified with portents of war, sedition, and ill fortune. Anything that kind of draws those ideas to your mind would be good to work with. His most famous serpents are, as I mentioned, the Colloquian dragon, as well as the Icemenian dragon, which was a snake that guarded the spring near Thebes. He is the god of war and violence, therefore calling on him for any sort of time you feel like you need to go to war. Keeping in mind the difference between Ares and Athena, this is the reckless type of war. This is the, I need to just go in and do something. So for like social justice, for immediate action, for things that are happening quickly and need strength and ferocity of battle. This is when you call on Aries and Mars as well. He is the father of both Harmonia, which is the goddess of harmony, and Eros, which is one of the gods of love through Aphrodite. So he does have a softer side to him through his children, bringing in some of that passion to get rid of the discord of his, you know, troop of merry bandits and bringing in harmony through his daughter and love through his son. If you do need to sow some seeds of discord, though, you can call on his sister Eris, who's the goddess of discord. Also, he had daughters who were Amazons as well. So that like strength of battle to Two of his sons, Diamos and Phoebus, are usually near him, which is fulfilled through, those are the names of the planet Mars, two moons. In terms of like colors that you might want to use, the red of the Mars planet, that fiery, passionate red color, I would say rust, any kind of rusted metal as well would be good to represent the color of blood and then the metal of the armor that he wears. Mars's symbol for the planet is the circle with the arrow shooting out of its head. Any sort of like spear or your wand would be a good representation for Mars. The wand being the fire element as well and all this fiery like energy. For Tyr, as the one-armed god, one way to invoke Tyr is to work with only one hand and see what that's like. Try cooking with one hand or try brushing your teeth with the other hand that you usually don't use or thinking about what the world would be like if you had only one hand. And if you already have one hand, then maybe Tyr is your guy. Same with what Erica said about the war type of magic, all that stuff you can invoke Tyr as well for social justice, for if you're going to a protest. If you are feeling rage about something and you need a place that will be a good outlet for that rage, Tyr can help you guide it somewhere good. And as I mentioned before, Tyr's day has transformed into modern English Tuesday. So spending Tuesday focusing on Tyr and also Mars, because in other languages, Tuesday is more closely aligned with Mars Day. French, it's Marty. You can see that similar like correspondence across different languages and cultures, how these gods are aligned. So I just looked up Tuesday and Mars, and according to nasa.gov, Mars Day is Tuesday. Well, that's because it is. I know. It's just like it's been officially declared by NASA. Well, I don't <laughs> care what NASA says about anything <laughs> astrology related. I'm mad at them after they tried to like, they're the ones who keep pumping into the social commentary, the thing about Ophetius. Oh, yeah. 
They're like, this is why astrology is fake, because look at this one. It's also in the Zodiac band. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not how the, they very deliberately chose the 12 Zodiac signs that they did because they were equally spaced. And even there are like, it, there's even more than Ephesus in the band. There's like hundreds in that band. Mm -hmm. NASA. And so now every like three years, I have to have this argument on the internet because NASA's <laughs> like, hey, astrology is stupid and here's why. And then everyone's like, is my sign actually Taurus? And it's like, no, no, <laughs> I'm leaving this in. NASA needs to hear my brain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm channeling tear and directing my rage at NASA. <laughs> yes. And so the little quote on the link says, Mars Day was Tuesday because of the planet's red color. The Babylonians associated Mars with aggression and performed special ceremonies on Tuesdays to avoid the fearsome influence of this warlike planet. Mars Day is still Tuesday, 5,000 years later. Also, their punctuation and capitalization is atrocious. <laughs> they, they hired some like, high school intern who's not getting paid enough to care about <laughs> punctuation to, to do yeah. some social media yeah. blurbs. <laughs> the last sentence was, so I'm going to emphasize where the capitals are and pause where the commas are. Mars day is still Tuesday, 5,000 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Back to tier. <laughs> Some tools or some symbols of Tyr include the arrow and the spear. These were his weapons of choice, how he chose to fight in battles. So if you have a spear or an arrow that you would like to use, or you could draw this as you invoke this god into your spell work, you could use the symbol of Tiwaz, which looks like an arrow. So again, there's that same symbolism. Tiwaz is the 17th rune in the Elder Futhark. So uh, the number 17 would also be good, but don't get all conspiracy theory about the number 17. Similar colors, red is a good one for tier. The last thing I would say for invoking tier is doing some sort of sports activity because sports can sort of be like war. They are representative of war and they're a way to get that like active energy flowing. Getting a tackle football game going or playing foosball even if you don't want to like run around. You just want to give your wrists a workout. Doing sports. Doing electronic sports, esports. Listeners at home can't see Maggie doing the thumb movement to indicate playing a video game. <laughs> My friend got carpal tunnel in her thumb, or not carpal tunnel, I guess, whatever. Dequare veins. The thing you probably got because yep. of your mm -hmm. knitting, but it was because she was playing too much Xbox. Gamer girls. It's also called gamer thumb. Dequare veins tendonitis is also known as gamer thumb. This episode is brought to you by Citrine. I actually did a reel about Citrine recently, so go check out the Mumbles and Things Instagram account. Most of the Citrine on the market, and I feel very confident saying most of the Citrine on the market is actually heat-treated amethyst. So that's something to think about. And in that reel, I gave some tips about how to distinguish them. But let me tell you about it what citrine is like. It is usually a yellowish brown, yellow, or smoky gray brown color. It is generally transparent because it comes as a, it forms as a crystal like an amethyst or a quartz crystal. It is a quartz crystal. 
and it comes in all sizes, often found as a geode, a point, or a cluster. Oh, hey, it says it in the book. Natural citrine is comparatively rare, and heat-treated amethyst is often sold as citrine. That's because when you add heat to the purple color of the amethyst, it turns sort of yellowy-orange. Finally, citrine is mined in Brazil, Russia, France, Madagascar, Britain, and the United States. I do want to mention before you go into the magical one, I, I want to tell you how you can tell citrine apart from heat treated. So natural citrine citrine <laughs> is light golden yellow or deep golden brown, while heat treated amethyst is a bright yellow or orange. Natural citrine. Natural citrine has color that's distributed all throughout the clear crystals, while heat-treated amethyst has color at the tip and clear or white parts at the base. Natural citrine has straight sides and long points on the crystals where heat-treated amethyst is going to come more likely in clusters rather than in long points. And natural citrine is going to be more expensive because of that rare factor. It's not cheap, whereas heat-treated amethyst is much more common and therefore cheaper. So in my opinion, I don't know that it completely matters for magical uses. I think it's dishonest to sell something as citrine rather than as heat-treated amethyst. And so I would wonder what that seller was doing elsewhere, or if they really knew what they were doing or just kind of jumping on the bandwagon. But in terms of like magical usage, which Erica is going to tell us about now, I think you can use either. Citrine is an active stone that corresponds with air and fire, Mars and Mercury, and Libra, Gemini, and Aries. It is a good gem to work with if you're needing to bring abundance into your life. It is also really good for balancing the emotions and can be used as a chakra cleanser. So doing any sort of meditative thinking about how to balance both your emotions and chakras, having the citrine on you, near you to help with that process. In my experience, natural citrine and heat-treated amethyst have a very similar energy. The subtle difference that I usually notice is that it's a lighter, more buoyant feeling when holding the heat-treated amethyst compared to the natural citrine. So this could be a higher self energy carrying over from the amethyst, maybe get one of each and see how it is different for you. And if you even notice a difference. Next week, we will be looking at our lives through the lens of Dagas, which is a rune that translates today. The keywords here are daylight, success, hope, breakthrough, transformation, and balance. So we will be looking at these themes and what they mean in our lives. And we invite you to think about how this rune shows up in your life. If you have a story about Dagas that you'd like to share with us, please send us a voicemail to welisten at talkwitchcraft.com. You can find out more about this episode by going to mumblesandthings.com slash blog slash 082. Join us next week when we talk about Taurus. Make sure that you're subscribed so that you're notified about each new episode and help other witches find the show by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at the account Mumbles and Things. And if you have any other tips to add, you can tell us about it in the Talk Witchcraft Forum in the Mumbles Academy community. And don't forget to share this episode with your witchy friends and followers. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
in this episode. I don't have an awake tongue yet. 20 minutes later. That form the backbone of North Miss Mort. <laughs> we all get one. <laughs> A few moments later. Then the great. great oh, I used a second one. I'm sorry. <laughs> one minute, 37 seconds later. This vibrant city ha- is. Blah, blah, there's my second one. <laughs> all right. Well, we only get two, though. <laughs>